You're on. Welcome to the episode 84 of the Dipshit Files, our season finale. I'm Mr. Scriptkeeper. And I'm Mrs. Scriptkeeper. And today we're closing out the season with H.H. Holmes and his final part. Yes, we are. And it's a... Uh, it's, it's fucked a, up, isn't it? It's a fucked up story. It's it's a fucked up story. Okay, so friendly friends for sure? Yes. All right, well, let's schmickle the hignar. So this week, we're continuing our story about the horrific actions of Herman Webster Mudgett, better known as the twisted H.H. Holmes. Mm -hmm. Now, if you missed part one of this story, you may want to go back and listen to episode 83 first before consuming this one. Fucked up, dude. Yeah, well, foundations are always built before roofs, you know. Mm -hmm. So if you missed that one, in order to understand the depth of what's going on here, you may want to go back and listen to that one first. And then move on to this one. So last week we left off with Holmes having an affair with a married woman named Julia. Julia, then leaving her loyal, albeit unsuccessful and evidently dull, husband to be with Holmes and then ending up getting pregnant. Mm -hmm. She wanted Holmes to make an honest woman of her. However, Holmes, being the upstanding guy that he is, told her he didn't want more kids after the two already that he had to deal with. So he had one of his own from a previous marriage, I mean, let's not be foolish, he was still married, Mm -hmm. and Julia's two-year-old daughter, Pearl. Holmes told Julia, yes, of course I'll marry you, on the condition that you have an abortion. She agreed, and Holmes assured Julia that he had done this procedure before, and he was just going to do it. You know, I mean, he was a pharmacist, for Christ's sake. All pharmacists are doctors, right? (laughs) So Julia agreed, and the date was set, Christmas Eve night. So when the time came, Holmes told Julia that her two-year-old daughter, Pearl, had to go to bed prior to the procedure. So he scooped her up and headed out the door with a tiny toddler in his arms, stopping by his office to grab a cloth rag and a glass bottle of liquid. That's where we left off last time. Yes. So let's begin. I'm sure it'll be sweet. Awesome. Friendly friends on the ready. Yep. So let's begin. Okay. So he placed Tiny Pearl into her bed and then poured the liquid onto the cloth and then held it tightly over the child's face as she fought back, spasmed, and eventually went limp. I need friendly friends. Friendly friends are friendly as fuck. Hey, kids, we're the friendly friends. Yeah, I'm Smiley. I'm Hudsy. And I'm Buddy the Beaver. And we're here to remind you that despite some humans being massive cunts to each other, whole thing, yeah. there's a lot of great things that humans do, like, uh... Tacos. Fucking tacos. They're delicious. Also, like art sometimes. I like cartoons. And random acts of kindness and stuff. They shoot at me. Fair enough, Hugsy the Bear. You are a bear, though. <laughs> they shoot at me, too. Well, they usually trap you. Yeah. I'm extinct now. Yeah, they flat out eradicated the universe. Right, so the default human setting is cunt. But almost all of you have the ability to not be cunts most of the time. They shoot at me. (laughs) Well, we've been the friendly friends, and now back to the terrible things. He then returned to Julia and assured her that her child was safely tucked away into bed and fast asleep. But little did she know, Pearl was dead. Uh He led Julia towards a secret staircase, a staircase that she had never seen before, 
and they both descended down into the cellar where Holmes's operating table awaited Julia. Now, I told you this was going to be a rough one, and friendly friends were going to be needed. I feel like they're already needed. I know. We're a minute in. We're already a dead kid in. All right. So here we go. Julia and her daughter, Pearl, were never seen again. Right. Now, not long after, a gentleman named Charles M. Chapel, who was actually one of Holmes's employees, was asked to accompany Holmes to the second floor of the castle. Evidently, he had a job for him. So, Chapel was actually very good at articulating and mounting human skeletons. Oh, wow. And he had learned this skill at medical college years ago. Um, when Holmes learns of this, he decided that Chapel was a man he could use. Uh-huh. Holmes led Chapel into the room on the second floor of the castle. Inside this room was a table holding a partially dissected woman who was around six feet tall, the same size as Julia, by the way. Mm-hmm. Her features were unrecognizable, though, as her face had been split and the skin had been peeled away from her entire body. Boy. Of course, at the time... Uh, Chapel thought everything was perfectly above board and legal. I mean, after all, he knew Holmes was a doctor and was probably going through an autopsy. But he later described the body of the woman as strangely looking like a jackrabbit that had been skinned by splitting the skin down the face and rolling it back off the entire body. The body was already badly mutilated, and Holmes paid Chapel $36 to strip the corpse clean of any flesh and articulate the skeleton. Hmm. Now, when the work was done, Holmes sold the skeleton to the medical college and made a nice profit of 200 bucks, which in today's money, I believe is somewhere around five grand. Hmm. Eventually, a surgeon named Pauling obtained the skeleton and then proudly displayed it in his very own office, totally unaware that it was actually the skeleton of Julia who was murdered in the bowels of H.H. Holmes' castle along with her small child. What a crazy business model. On Christmas Eve. Yeah, fuck. Yeah. So, in 1879, a doctor, Leslie Keeley, announced that he'd found a cure for alcoholism. But Keeley treated alcoholism as a disease rather than an addiction or dependence. And according to him, this disease could be cured with his groundbreaking procedure, also known as the gold cure. So in order to rid yourself of alcohol disease, all you needed to do was book yourself into the institute and treatment would begin. This treatment included four injections of bichloride of gold four times a day. Up your butt. As well as other tonics. Up your butt. Now, the patients were placed in hotels or local houses that also offered spa-like experiences. And after four weeks, the patient would be released a new person, so to speak. It's thought that the injections contained gold salts, vegetable oils, and even ammonia. Up the butt. Yikes. I don't think it was up the butt. I think they were actual injections probably under the skin. I would like the listener to picture it going up the butt. (laughs) However, Keeley was, he always kept the ingredients of the injections a total secret. Because of this, his miracle cure was always met with scrutiny from the medical community who claimed it was more than a stretch to believe that a cure for alcoholism could be administered and seen through to completion in only four weeks. Regardless, Keeley's business flourished, and for every patient he cured, he would then hire them to go out and promote the miracle cure themselves. Keeley's slogan spoke for itself, which was, quote, drunkenness is a disease and I can cure it, end quote. 
One man who was drawn to the idea of the gold cure was Benjamin Pizel, H.H. Holmes' right-hand man. Benjamin realized that booze was slowly destroying him and something needed to be done. Or maybe Holmes thought it was best to rid this man of his alcoholism once and for all. I mean, he relied on Benjamin, and he was no good to him drunk or hungover. The procedure cost a ridiculous $100, which for the day was extremely expensive, possibly a sum of money that was totally out of reach for a man like Benjamin. So it's highly likely that Holmes paid for Ben to visit the Institute. Whether he was looking out for Ben or simply saw an opportunity to steal the recipe for the gold cure for himself and make up his own version, this isn't entirely known. But what is known is that Ben booked himself into the Institute on March of 1882, and by April of 1882, he had returned a new man, a sober man. Hmm. It would seem that the gold cure had worked. Right up the butt. Well, maybe not, because it wasn't long before Ben's cravings led him to the bottle once more. Oh, well, However, Ben was finding it hard to forget a woman that he had met at the institution. Hmm. She had checked him into the program. No doubt he wasted no time in telling Holmes about the beautiful woman who sat behind the desk of the institute. Oh, no. Ben told Holmes in detail about the 24-year-old tall blonde woman that was a sight to behold with glowing soft skin and a charming innocence about her. This lady was named Emmeline Sigrand. After hearing this information, Holmes, who we all know likes the ladies, wasted no time in visiting the Institute. Benjamin had already told Emmeline about Holmes while he was being treated over the four weeks and how he had worked for such an important man, no doubt trying to impress her. Mm -hmm. Now, because of Ben's blathering, in a way, she probably felt familiar to the man she'd never met. And it wasn't long before Holmes once again turned on his charms and won Emmeline over. Mm. Initially, he did this by writing to her and offering her a job at the castle as his private secretary. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. A great way to keep her close. And then he offered her a salary of $18 a week. That was a massive 50% increase over the wage Dr. Keeley was paying at the Institute. So... How could she say no? So as soon as she took the position, Holmes wasted no time in seducing her with expensive gifts, fancy dinners in elegant restaurants, and expensive trips to the theater, as well as meeting for sweet little walks through the park. And it wasn't long before he had totally won her over, and they had become an item. However, let's not forget that Holmes is still married to Myrta, by the way, who his customers often inquired about as well as his first wife that no one knew of. That's right. Fuck me, man. Right. But it was just collecting them. He's just collecting the ladies. Mm. But it was clear to see that Holmes and his secretary were now in a relationship. And by the end of 1892, she expected Holmes to marry her. And he actually agreed to this. After their engagement, Holmes encouraged her to write the addresses of her, her closest relatives on 12 empty envelopes. And he would have some beautiful professional marriage announcements printed up and sent out. Now, the strange thing, however, was that Holmes insisted that she refer to him as Robert E. Phelps in these announcements, Hmm. which is fucking weird. And she did, which is dumb. (laughs) So as she sat there addressing her envelopes, feeling like the happiest woman in the world, she had no idea that Holmes had already decided that she was going to die. 
and he was the one who was going to kill her. Mm. Now, there are many theories as to why Holmes decided to kill Emmeline. It could have been that she simply knew too much of his business, or maybe to him it was the easiest course of action, but I think Holmes simply wanted to kill. It's just my opinion. Maybe the urge had become too strong to ignore after the excitement and the novelty of his previous kills had gradually worn off. Well, he's got this big murder castle, so I mean, you didn't want to let that go to waste. <laughs> right. It's like, I have all this murder stuff, he's and like, you're here, I and am, I'm here. I invested, so we may as well use it. Right? R-O-I. Let's do this. <laughs> Sorry about your luck. Sometime during December of 1892, Holmes asked Emmeline to search for some important papers, business papers that he kept inside the walk-in safe. So, Emmeline walked into the safe and proceeded to search for the papers in question, and while she was preoccupied, Holmes pushed the door shut and turned the wheel and locked Emmeline inside. Oh, boy. Now, it's said that at first, Emmeline was simply baffled as to what was going on. She had absolutely no reason to suspect Holmes of anything sinister and as cruel as what he had planned for her. She gradually started to realize that Holmes was not going to open the door and she was now trapped in here and was finding it increasingly difficult to breathe. Her suffocation was, of course, caused by the lack of air inside the safe, but this process was sped up by the deadly fumes rising from an acid that Holmes had spread across the floor. Murder house. Prior to Emmeline entering the safe. Goddamn. Outside, Holmes listened intently as she went from demanding the door to be open to pleading for his assistance and then to pure terror and panic as she realized that she was going to die. Wow, fuck. As she choked on the toxic mixture of fumes in the air, she pushed her feet against the door in one more final attempt to free herself. The acid that had been placed on the floor actually burned a perfect print of her foot into the steel safe of the door. Hmm. While Samily slowly and painfully choked to death on the floor of the safe, Holmes stood there just outside and pleasured himself oh over and Lord. over until he was satisfied and then relaxed. What a loser. Waiting. Not long after Emily's death, Holmes took the addressed envelopes she had filled out just days before, stating that she'd marry a gentleman named Robert Phelps. This was to make her family believe that Emmeline had simply ran away with another man. And once again, Holmes paid for the flesh to be stripped from Emmeline's body and the skeleton professionally articulated. And they sold it to MIT. Now in 1893, the World's Columbian Exposition, or as many come to know it as simply the Chicago World Fair, was being held in Chicago to celebrate the 400 year anniversary of Christopher Columbus and his voyage into the New World in 1492. The fair covered a massive 690 acres and brought together 46 nations who all participated in the fair and welcomed over 27 million visitors over its six-month run. This World Fair was a very important event, and in a way, it represented Chicago's rebirth after the Great Fire. But the fair also saw some truly revolutionary inventions and showcased some brand new styles in architecture and introduced some new cultural ideas. And Illuminati as fuck. I wanted to throw some of this stuff in here because I was fascinated. So All the future was right there that we live in today. Exactly. So yeah. if you could step back in time and attend the fair, here are a few of the attractions you would have witnessed with your own eyes. 
You could have taken a ride on the world's very first Ferris wheel hmm. that stood an impressive 264 feet high. Would you want to be the first one on that thing? No. <laughs> you could have seen life-size reproductions of Christopher Columbus's three ships. Fucking right. Which the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. Right. They were, they were actually built in Spain and then sailed over to the U.S. specifically for the World Fair. That sounds pretty autonomously to me. You could have also seen the world's first moving walkway where visitors to the fair could either sit or stand as a moving walkway took them directly to the casino. Escalator shit. Isn't that crazy? People movers. You could have also witnessed for the very first time the invention of the dishwasher, the zipper, uh. the elevator, and the very first voice recording, as well as so much more. I people, mean, this this was insane. People were like, these are wizards mm-hmm. that did all this shit. Look at all the wizards that came to Chicago. Yeah, so that's what was going on here. And Holmes had been preparing for the World Fair for quite some time. And when the fair eventually arrived in Chicago, it is said that Holmes had every room of his hotel booked almost every night. It's not definitively known just how many people met their end in the murder castle over the time the World Fair was in Chicago, but... He had to pick off a couple. Right. Well, one magazine suggested that Holmes may have had over 200 victims during this period. Whoa. Right? Although this is highly unlikely. Now, it's rumored that maybe 50 tourists had stayed in the castle and disappeared, never to be seen again oh. or heard from again. Still and they, substantial. That's huge. And it's likely they met their end as he dumped, pumped gas into their room while they slept. Hmm. Now, in fact, his staff would later comment on just how many female guests simply ran away, leaving their belongings behind. And Holmes, strangely, didn't seem concerned that he'd been cheated out of his room fee, Hmm. which was really weird for him because he was greedy, greedy. Mm -hmm. When in reality, it was the hotel guests that were cheated out of their lives and then thrown down the grease chutes that wound their way uh, into the dark basement where Holmes kept his dissecting table. Fuck. Fucking creepy. Murder castles are bad. (laughs) It's true. In 1893, Holmes was once again on the prowl for another mistress. And it wasn't long before he had another woman on his payroll. This lady was named Minnie Williams, and Holmes hired her as a personal secretary, once again. And of course, it wasn't long before they were lovers. Now, unlike Holmes's past conquests, Minnie wasn't in the same caliber. She was described as naive and, well, kind of not very bright, but pleasant, uh, short-legged, and plump. In the book Deviant, she's described as an overgrown baby, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which, weird. It's safe to say she wasn't Holmes' usual type, but uh, nonetheless, they were a couple. In fact, Minnie had one very luring detail about her that Holmes could not resist. So when Minnie was younger, she and her younger sister, Nanny, were adopted by two separate uncles. The uncle who took Minnie was very well off. And her life with him was really comfortable, and money was never an issue. However, when Minnie turned 23, her uncle sadly passed away, but left her some property in his will that was valued at over $40,000. Hmm. Pre-1900s. Pre, that's a lot of money. Dollars, yeah. So, in hindsight, it became painfully clear what Holmes wanted. It wasn't that he was interested in Minnie. He was interested in what she had. It seemed at this particular time, Holmes was in a massive amount of debt. Although it never bothered him in his past, 
currently his creditors are now actually banding together and were applying a well-deserved amount of pressure for him to pay. So it wasn't long before Holmes worked his charms once again and somehow persuaded Minnie to sign over the property to him. He obviously had her unconditional love and trust, and she was known to be a very kind woman, and Holmes knew exactly how to exploit kindness. Now, seeing as Holmes already had the property signed over to him, this is the part where he would typically kill his victim and send them careening down the grease chute to the basement. Mm -hmm. But there was another problem he needed to deal with first. Minnie had started a new relationship with her sister, Nanny, who was adopted by the other uncle. And she quickly became a fixture in her life, which meant that Nanny knew about Holmes. Oh, no. Minnie had spoken fondly of him in letters to Nanny on many occasions, and this presented a problem. There could be absolutely no loose ends in Holmes's plans. So this meant that Holmes had to decide that Minnie and Nanny both had to die. So Holmes went about putting his evil plan in motion one day. Holmes suggested that Minnie invite Nanny and they would all enjoy the day out at the World Fair. And so she did. They actually visited the fair a few times during Nanny's visit, and it was during this time that Holmes was actually doing his best to charm Nanny, who was apparently rather suspicious of Holmes at first, but it didn't take long before he had earned her trust. On their last visit to the World Fair, Holmes suggested that Minnie return home and rest, and he would take Nanny to the castle, and he would show her around the building. So Minnie returned home and Nanny went with Holmes as he showed her around this weird, mind-bending, confusing passageways of the castle. When the tour was over, Holmes requested that Nanny help him with some really important papers that he needed her to get from the walk-in safe. As he led her into the safe, he quickly shut the door and locked Nanny inside where she suffocated to death. Later, Holmes would return to Minnie, obviously without Nanny. And when she asked where her sister was, he told her that she was waiting back at the castle and they were going to swing in and pick her up on their way to dinner. So an excited Minnie quickly got dressed and was then escorted to the castle by Holmes to join her sister that evening. And in true H.H. fashion, Holmes dined alone as Minnie suffocated back at the castle in his walk-in safe. Peace. It wasn't long before Holmes had once again met another woman who he quickly became engaged to. Holmes had actually been visiting this woman while courting Minnie Williams. But at the time, his attention was entirely on Minnie and her inheritance. However, now that Minnie was out of the picture along with her sister, and his attention was now fully on his new love interest, Miss Georgina York. 23-year-old Georgina was a blue-eyed, blonde-haired young woman who was said to be extremely charming. As we all know, Holmes was already married, and so he made up some extravagant story telling Georgina that both his parents were dead, which was a lie. He told her that his siblings had also died, and that his uncle on his mother's side had looked after him and became his only remaining relative, which was also a lie. Uh, He told her that his uncle was to leave him all of his fortune in his will, but to do so, he wanted Holmes to take his name, Henry Mansfield Howard, which obviously was another lie. Mm -hmm. This was a great way to avoid suspicion when he eventually married again. Holmes was very adept at spinning the perfect lie, 
and they just flowed from him so easily. It was like second nature. In addition to the wedding, Holmes had uh, more pressing things on his mind, mainly the amount of debt he had mounted up over the years, and now his creditors were pressing him for payments. As we know, Holmes always eventually grew bored with the women in his life. However, he had now become bored with the murder castle, Hmm. and he decided it was time to bring this part of his life to a close and move on to other uh, devious activities. So, on a crisp night in October, Holmes paid a man to set the castle on fire. How do you take for granted your murder castle? What a dick. (laughs) And so the top floor and the second floor went up in flames. The top floor was totally destroyed, and the second floor partially damaged. But the row of shops underneath remained untouched. Holmes had actually taken out multiple insurance policies against fire. And he intended to claim the money, which would have been a payout of $25,000. However, upon inspection, it was discovered that the fire looked really suspicious. Mm. In addition, Holmes had actually raised a few red flags himself with his past swindles. Ultimately, the insurance company refused to pay Holmes a dime. And Holmes simply walked away with no punishment. Hmm. He had escaped the law once again, but... Holmes was still in a lot of debt, and his creditors had actually hired hired a lawyer to get their money from him. Wow. If the money wasn't paid, a warrant would be made for his arrest. It was around this time that Holmes had come up with another scam. It would take a lot of planning. But with this scam, Holmes would require the help of his goon, Benjamin Peitzel. Remember Benjamin from the first episode? The goon. Hired goon. Holmes explained that he planned to take out a life insurance policy on Benjamin's life and then stage his death. He would then acquire a cadaver, badly disfigure it so he could pass off as Benjamin, and when Benjamin agreed, Holmes insured Ben's life to a total sum of $10,000. Now with that, Holmes and his new wife left Chicago, along with Benjamin, who said goodbye to his wife and children for now. And they were next seen in Texas. The inclusion of Georgiana, who is now Holmes' wife, by the way, was a complication. But Holmes simply lied through his teeth, and she bought everything he said, Hmm. completely trusting her loving husband. He told her that he was finalizing some important business deals and taking possession of the ranch left to him by his um, non-existent uncle. Remember him? When in reality... He was there to claim the property he swindled out of Minnie, yep. his dead fiance, as well as planning the complicated life insurance scam he and Benjamin planned to see through. However, Holmes did like to pull off different scams whenever the opportunity arose. And one of these scams was a horse theft, but it didn't go quite as planned, and it wasn't long before he had to leave Texas before the police could uh, charge him with a crime. Now, once again, Holmes explained to Georgiana with absolute lies as to why they were leaving in such a rush. And once again, she believed him. Over many months, Holmes and Benjamin traveled from city to city looking for the perfect place to pull off this life insurance scam, dragging Georgiana with them. But Holmes believed that he was unstoppable and he wasn't afraid to take on even more swindles. While they were in St. Louis, Holmes once again purchased a pharmacy like he had done so many years before, promising the owner's payment next month. And he then went about stocking the pharmacy up to the brim with merchandise purchased on credit and then sold it all off to make quite a bit of money. 
He then made up a bill of sale for the store to a completely fabricated buyer named Brown. And when the creditors came calling, he simply showed them the bill of sale and insisted he was no longer the owner of the store. However, this also didn't go to plan, and before Holmes could escape the city, he was arrested for the very first time and placed in jail for 10 days in 1894. But for Holmes, this was actually a happy twist of fate. So, while in jail, Holmes became quite friendly with a man named Marion Hedgepeth. On the 14th of April, 1856, Marion Hedgepeth was brought into the world, and by the age of 15, he'd already left home and found work as a cowboy in the Wild West. Fucking bruh. But by the time he reached his 20th birthday, he had killed a few men as well as becoming a train robber. Hmm. The appearance of most of the outlaws in that era are exactly what you might expect from the Old West. I picture the Riverdance kid. <laughs> a wide-brimmed hat, a mm-hmm. dirty shirt worn under a vest, and cowboy chaps worn over dusty jeans. Mm. But Marion Hedgepath was a different breed of outlaw. He liked to dress elegantly. That's the Riverdance kid. Wearing a bowler hat along with a suit that you might expect seen on a well-kept gentleman, finished off with polished boots. Mm. Evidently, he was quite a handsome man, standing at around six feet tall with brown wavy hair. However, despite his refined appearance, he was like a wild animal, (laughs) a stone cold killer and one of the fastest guns in the West. In 1889, he became part of a deadly gang that included three other outlaws and his own reputation eventually earned the gang the name the Hedgepath Four. On the night of November 30th, 1891, the gang robbed the St. Louis and San Francisco Express train by literally blowing out the side of it with dynamite. Fucking, why not just caress it, I guess? And then then taking $40,000. Wow. Right. One day, Holmes struck up a conversation with Marion and and explained his idea about swindling the insurance company and faking his friend's death. But to pull off the scam... Holmes would have to acquire a lawyer who he could trust with his plan and would accept a cut it, it, to make his payment to make it happen. He's got to find a filthy lawyer? Yeah, mm, I know. Luck, Where is he going to find that? Good luck. So Marion just so happened to know a very sketchy lawyer. Oh, fucking well, amazing. Right. Isn't the that odds? funny how that works? Like the lottery. I'm not entirely sure where he found one. Hmm. Holmes agreed to include Marion in the scam and gave him a nice payment of $500 hmm. if he could provide the name of the lawyer with no moral compass. <laughs> so Marion agreed and they shook on it. And he gave Holmes the name of his lawyer, Jephthah Howe. Hmm. So after these are all just crazy names, by the way. I know, and they're weird. Them. They're all crazy names. Marion and Jephthah. The last show was just fucking one after the other. I know. Like, I've never heard that before. <laughs> right. Nobody named their kids that after that generation. Je- Jephthah. <laughs> so after spending ten days in jail, Holmes left with the name of a lawyer and a new accomplice who would sit in jail for the foreseeable future. And Holmes had no intention of paying him a penny. Ooh. A mistake. He would live to regret, by the way. Oh, fucking A. Now, back in Chicago before leaving home, the drunk Benjamin told his wife all about the plan, blabbed it all, and the massive payout that they would receive with e- when everything went through. Now, his wife wasn't entirely happy with the whole thing, but she decided to support her husband the best way she could. 
Before he left, Benjamin, once again very drunk, sat down with his eldest child and proceeded to reassure her that if she saw any articles or pictures of him in the papers in the coming weeks saying that he was dead, she shouldn't worry and that everything was just fine. Now, his daughter found this strange, to say the least, but she just blamed it on the booze. Mm. Now, once in Philadelphia, where the scam would take place, Benjamin set himself up with a fake name, B.F. Perry. Holmes and Benjamin then rented a shop and gave him a fake business to run, an inventions business, uh, what they would call a patent dealer. We do inventions here. We need something invented. Here's a spork. Oh, that's already done. I guess they threw out the patents. I'm not sure. Hmm. Now, it was in this shop that eventually they would plan to stage an explosion where Holmes would provide a cadaver and plant it in the shop. He would then disfigure the face of the decoy body and pass it off as Benjamin, Hmm. making it look like he died in the explosion and then claim the life insurance. I bet a lot of psychopaths are sad about forensic science. Right. DNA shit. Sorry, please. Although this wasn't entirely all of Holmes's plan. He kept certain parts of the plan to himself. Because he was going to fuck the other folk over. Right. Well, he was basically planning every small detail of the scam. He couldn't really rely on Benjamin, who spent most of his days drunk as a fucking skunk. Right. In fact, Benjamin almost ruined the whole plan. After he was supposed to pay the monthly payment of the insurance company, but instead simply drank away the money. Holmes realized this at the very last minute, literally, and paid the monthly sum just in time. He's like, oh, you're lucky I don't still have my murder house, you little fucking... Right, well, this is something that's good, right? But it's something that would look very suspicious later on. Mm -hmm. Now, one day, Holmes returned to the patent shop to see Benjamin and found him blind, drunk, upstairs, totally unconscious. Mm -hmm. Holmes thought that now was probably the best time to act, and he did just that. Benjamin was already helpless, so it was very easy for Holmes to apply a dose of chloroform, a deadly dose of chloroform, which would ultimately kill Benjamin. This was always Holmes's plan. Why would he go to the challenge of finding a suitable dead body when he could simply just kill Benjamin? Yeah. I mean, Holmes then went about setting up the aftermath of the explosion by burning away the features of Ben's face so he wasn't recognizable, and once satisfied, he left the building. Days passed before the police discovered Benjamin's body, which, by that time, uh, had already started to decay, and the smell was almost unbearable. All evidence suggested that the man had been killed in an explosion, but there were a few things that just did not sit right with the detectives. One was the way the body was laid out. It was perfectly neat and his legs straight. Not how you would expect to find a body that had just been blown across the room. Yeah, that's pretty damning right there. Right. Well, another suspicious part of the explosion is that it only seemed to affect the man's chest and head. Um, On the floor lay a pipe and a bottle of a some flammable red liquid as well as a burn match, which suggested that the deceased lit his pipe and accidentally ignited the liquid, causing the explosion. But this theory also had holes. The pipe itself was in perfect condition. No burn marks or damage was seen on it. Hmm. Uh, And it was also placed sitting up neatly right beside his head. (laughs) I mean, this is an explosion scene, so it's weird. Then there was the autopsy, which uncovered that Mr. B.F. Perry liked to drink. And that was clear by the blackness of his kidneys, but also found they found traces of chloroform in his stomach. Uh. 
quite a lot of chloroform. Now, back home, Benjamin's very stressed out wife, Carrie, read the papers that a Mr. B.F. Perry had died in an explosion, and she knew that B.F. Perry was, in fact, Benjamin's fake name. Uh She knew that this man, uh, dead in the morgue, wasn't actually her husband. It was actually a dead body Holmes had acquired from elsewhere. She had no idea that it was, in fact, her husband. Uh. Holmes would continue with this lie for quite some time, fooling the poor woman all the way. After all, her own husband did ensure her that everything was going to be fine. Right. Now, a few weeks went by, and Carrie began to grow more and more anxious. And the stress was actually making her sick. Additionally, the money was starting to run out, and the children were going hungry. She spent many lonely nights lying in bed alone, wondering, where is my husband? Now, it wasn't long before H.H. Holmes turned up on her doorstep, offering her some money to tide her over until her husband's return. And he assured her that everything was going to plan. Mm. Soon, she and her husband will be reunited. But in order for the plan to continue smoothly, he coldly insisted that Carrie actually made the children believe that their father was in fact dead, as this would make it much more believable. Now, she agreed to go along with this, likely out of fear that they would all face prison if it fell through. And it didn't take long before the life insurance company received a letter from Carrie Peitzel. This was the next part of the plan, claiming that the man they found in with the name B.F. Perry was, in fact, her husband, Benjamin Peitzel, and he was insured for $10,000. However, there were a few things that the insurance company found suspicious. For one, the policy had been taken out less than a year ago. Two, the last payment was made late but just in time before the accident occurred. And three, why was Benjamin going by the name B.F. Barry? When it came time to identify the corpse, Holmes decided, Holmes decided, Holmes, that it should be the second eldest daughter, Alice, who should go and claim her father. Weird. Holmes was afraid that if Carrie went, she would recognize the body was in fact Benjamin and ruin the whole thing. Mm. But the children already believed it was actually their father. This is horrible. This is beyond. So Carrie stayed in St. Louis and sent her daughter Alice along with a strange lawyer named Howe, which she was not too happy about. But Holmes insisted that her daughter was in safe hands. Unknown to Carrie, it was the last time she would ever see Alice alive. It wasn't long before the insurance company, who were doing their own digging into the case, discovered that Holmes and Peisel, in fact, knew each other quite well. They also discovered that Holmes was, in fact, the owner of the castle back in Chicago that had been damaged in the fire. That guy, huh? And uh, according to the street floor-level business owners, Holmes had been gone for almost a year. Now, it wasn't long before the insurance companies got in touch with Murda Holmes. Holmes' second wife. Not his current one that he was traveling around with. Right. Now, if you remember... Not his first one. Right, right. If you remember, Murda was his second wife, and she had contacted him, uh, telling him that the insurance company wished to speak with him about his associate, Benjamin Peisel. So far, everything was going to plan. Holmes left his new wife, Georgina, once again, telling her that he had important business to take care of and would return as soon as possible. The insurance company wanted Holmes to identify the body, and so Holmes traveled to see the corpse, while at the same time, the crooked lawyer and Alice 
also did the same. Unfortunately, it wasn't as simple as just paying a visit to the morgue, though. So evidently, by now, the body of Benjamin had actually been buried for quite some time. Hmm. And so it was dug up oh, fuck. and placed inside a shed in the cemetery where identification could take place. Now, although the face was burned beyond recognition, there was also the fact that the body had also started to decay when it was first discovered. But now, it had been in the cold ground for quite some time, and the rotting flesh made it even harder to bear. Although there were a few identifying features, such as Benjamin's rotting teeth, a growth on the back of his neck, a scar on his calf, and a bruised thumb, which I thought was kind of weird, right. which made it easy for a devastated Alice and a very calm Holmes to identify the body as that of Benjamin Peitzel. Hmm. In fact, it was actually Holmes who moved the body around in the coffin for the examiner, hmm. who found it just too much to bear. He simply stood back as Holmes maneuvered the body, sliced thumbnails, and removed all dead flesh to show the identifying features of the corpse. So Holmes and his shady lawyer had pulled it off. The body was proven to be that of Peitzel, Peitzel, and the insurance money would be given very soon, while the shady lawyer would have to stay in Philadelphia to receive the insurance money. Holmes would once again return to Georgina, feeding her more lies about his false business ventures. Mm -hmm. Whilst only a few blocks away, 15-year-old Alice was holed up alone inside a hotel room. Holmes had assured Carrie that she would be back in her husband's arms in no time, but they must be careful as to not make the insurance people suspicious. So Holmes suggested that he take the two children, Nellie and Howard, to join their sister, Alice. And Carrie should follow a little later. He assured her it wouldn't be long before they were all reunited. Uh, she was reunited with her husband. And to make her feel more comfortable, Holmes divided the profits of the insurance money. And out of the ten grand, Carrie only got 500 bucks. Oh, wow. The lawyer got some, but Holmes pocketed the rest. I'm surprised at that. That's really shocking. It's So in order to leave no witnesses, by the way, Holmes had planned to kill the whole remaining family. Uh, but before he did so, he decided to move them around from hotel to hotel. And this included Carrie and the other children, as well as his wife, Georgina. Sometimes, Carrie would only be blocks away from her children and not even know about it. Wow. This was a way to make the trail more difficult to follow when he finally decided that they were going to die. So he was kind of like playing hopscotch between all these hotels. Mm-hmm. And when his wife started asking about when they would settle down again, he'd simply feed her more lies. When Carrie asked when she would again, once again, see her children and her husband, he'd dole out the lies to her as well. And when the children, who spent most of their time locked in a hotel room crying for their mother, asked when they would see their mom again, he would lie, lie, lie. Mm. And as upset as Carrie was and deeply depressed that her children and her husband, who she believed was still alive, had been away from her for weeks, the children's suffering was somewhere more, somewhat more heartbreaking. Mm. They were dressed in the same clothing that they had left in home. They had left home in so long ago, which now resembled rags and barely kept them warm as the cold weather began to creep in. Fuck. They were locked inside numerous hotel rooms, slowly going out of their minds with boredom, loneliness, and hunger. And they would often occupy their time by writing multiple letters to their mother, letters that Holmes never intended to deliver. Hmm. 
Holmes would often be seen escorting three young children about with him who all looked unkept and unclean, which in contrast with the elegantly dressed Holmes was a really strange sight for onlookers. Eventually, he decided that it was time for one of the children to die, and he chose little 10-year-old Howard to go first. Uh. Howard was becoming increasingly harder to handle and was missing his mother terribly. He would cry constantly, and Holmes would often explain this away by stating that the child had behavior issues. But the child's tantrums and crying had become a problem to Holmes. Charles's time was now up, and he simply told his older sisters, Holmes told his older sisters, that he was taking the little boy to stay with a female friend of his who could care for him until their mother returned. Okay, hmm. so just a warning. The next part of this story may be hard to stomach, and I apologize in advance, but this is historical fact. Although I am intentionally leaving out gruesome detail, um, as shock value is not needed to understand this story. Right. So I'm going to move forward with as much basic information as I can, because this is about children. Friendly Don't even nope. think about it. No, thank you. Humans suck. Yeah. <laughs> Holmes rented a house a well-shielded house in the middle of nowhere. He had a single bed delivered and a large stove, and it was in this house that 10-year-old Howard was killed. Holmes uh, then dismembered his body and incinerated his remains in the stove. When Holmes was finished disposing of his small inconvenience, he abandoned the house and left without a trace. If you guys want to know the details of everything that happened, look it up. Uh, okay. But that's where we're at. Nope. Shortly after, the two girls would also be discarded in a truly cruel way. Holmes somehow convinced the two girls to climb inside a large trunk. I imagine he told them that there, maybe there was a game they're going to play. And so when they got in, he just simply closed the lid, locking them inside. He then inserted a pipe that was connected to a gas line and turned the tap allowing the gas to flow into the trunk, suffocating young Alice and Nellie. Finally free of the children, now it was their mother's turn. Carrie had absolutely no idea what happened to her kids. However, back in Missouri State Penitentiary, Marion Hedgepath had been following the story of the death of Benjamin Peisel and had somehow gathered that this was the insurance fraud that Holmes had told him about during his time in prison. Now... It's entirely possible that if Holmes had kept his part of the deal and paid Marion his 500 bucks for providing Holmes with the name of a shady lawyer, mm -hmm. he may have gotten away with the scam. However, as we already know, Holmes didn't like to part with his money. Right. He was cunning and untrustworthy and never intended to pay Hedgepath a dime. As the saying goes, there's no honor amongst thieves. And Hedgepath told the authorities about Holmes's plan to commit insurance fraud. So... Holmes was arrested for fraud, but he was still determined to get away with the crime. So he did what he did best. He lied. He lied through his damn teeth. The police wanted to know that if the body was not Benjamin Pisell, then who did it belong to? And this is where Holmes insisted that the body was actually a cadaver, a decoy. And Benjamin was in fact alive and well and in hiding. The police also asked where the children were, and every time Holmes was one step ahead of them, insisting that the children were alive and well, and he would send them out on a wild goose chase, trying to find, trying his best to avoid the consequences at any cost. He could handle being arrested for insurance fraud, 
but murder would mean the end for him. So he kept up the story that Benjamin was alive and the children were just fine with their father. Hmm. However, after some truly amazing police work by Frank Geyer, uh, Philadelphia, I think it's Geyer or it's Geyer, G-E-Y-E-R, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Hmm. A Philadelphia police detective who investigated the case with such skill to find three missing children, he literally combed all known areas that Holmes had visited with his wife from hotel to hotel, asking anyone and everyone what they knew. Nice job, MacGyver. Knocking on doors, talking to hotel staff and estate agents, looking for any trace and chances that anyone knew who Holmes was and recognized pictures of the three children he dragged around with him. Now, eventually, his detective work led him to the bodies of the very decomposed Pizel girls and the cellar of the Toronto home. The homeowners who now lived on the property were very aware of a strange patch of dirt that was in the cellar, but could never have suspected what was buried underneath the home. Oh, boy. The little girl's bodies were so badly decomposed that the scalp and hair of Alice came away from her skull when they lifted her out of the hole. All of the detectives were emotionally scarred from this experience and would never be the same. Fuck, man. It was discovered that Holmes had also tried to hide the identity of the youngest girl, Nellie, who had a clubbed foot and had done this by removing her foot, which was never found. Hmm. It didn't take long before Frank was successful in finding the house in which Holmes had rented to kill little Howard. Uh, it was here that he learned that Holmes had purchased drugs from a local drugstore and also had a surgical tool purposely sharpened to dismember the child. While searching the chimney of the house, Geyer found teeth that were still attached to the jawbone, as, was, as well as other bits of bone fragments. And he also found the charred remains of young, of young Howard Beisel's stomach. Hmm. These small fragments were all that remained of the little boy. Of course, when Carrie Peisel learned that her children were dead, she was literally beside herself with grief. She had suspected for some time that her children and husband may be dead, but to have it revealed as fact proved too much, and it absolutely destroyed this woman. The investigators felt that even though she knew about the scam from day one, she was still a victim in the whole thing. Yeah. The poor woman had already lost her husband and all three of her children. So all charges were dropped. She'd suffered enough. When Holmes was made aware of the children's bodies, uh, that the children's bodies had been found, he simply hatched another lie. He was getting desperate now, though, claiming that the children had been placed in the safe hands of accomplices named Minnie and Hatch. He had trusted them to look after the children, but they have must have been the ones that killed them. Hmm. However, if his lies were thin before, they were now totally transparent. Mm -hmm. No one believed a word he said. Now, while this was happening, police were investigating the murder castle. And as they walked the bizarre twisted corridors of the vacant property, they could sense that something was off about the building, especially the inclusion of secret sliding walls, chutes that went from the second floor to the basement, and then suspicious controls in Holmes' office that seemed to pump gas into selected bedrooms. Hmm. 
That, when would, they, that would be kind of a, like, well, red flag oh, here. Oh, weird. Who needs that? I know why. And when they reached the basement, it was there that they really saw the reality of the situation with the dissecting tables, mm. the quick lime vats, and of course, the human bones. Holmes continued to claim his innocence until it was abundantly clear to him that the dream was over and he had lost. But, like most serial killers, he enjoyed telling all about his evil deeds. He even wrote his own memoirs and admitted to the murder of 27 people. Although, he also confessed to the murder of some people who turned out to be very much alive. Holmes couldn't help but lie, so it makes it difficult to know the exact number of victims he claimed over the years. Many feel it was in the hundreds, but ultimately, we'll never know. Even though Holmes did get some form of pleasure from killing, it's safe to say that his motive was always money. Holmes was later documented as saying the following, quote, I was born with the devil in me. I could not help the fact that I was a murderer no more than a poet can help the inspiration to sing, end quote. Hmm. On May the 7th, 1896, Holmes was hanged at the Philadelphia County Prison. It is said that he remained calm and collected. The only concern about his imminent death was that his body be buried 10 feet deep and concrete poured over the top. He feared his body would be stolen (laughs) and dissected, which is pretty ironic considering the things that he did. And that's probably why he suspected that was going to happen. People like irony. The world likes irony, don't they? So as the guards secured the deuce around his neck, Holmes turned to the man and muttered his last words, quote, take your time, old man, don't bungle it, (laughs) end quote. When Holmes dropped, the noose yanked at his neck with a great deal of force, but it didn't break. Oh, he bungled it. So for the next 15 minutes, Holmes twitched and kicked and ultimately choked to death. Wow. That's a fitting way for a guy to go. Yeah. So in the years that followed, many people believed that Holmes was far too clever of a man to simply die at the end of a rope. And some believed that Holmes was such a good con man that he simply talked his way out of death and that the body that lay in the coffin wasn't Holmes at all, but a decoy corpse. Hmm. So in 2017, the grave of H.H. Holmes was dug up and the coffin was opened and they were shocked to find that the body was still in extremely good condition. Hmm. This may have been due to the concrete that was poured on top of the coffin all those years ago. Mm-hmm. Apparently, there was no denying that the corpse was that of H.H. H. Holmes. His clothes were in excellent condition, and even his mustache had survived all those years. Wow. But to positively confirm that this man was Holmes, DNA tests were done on his teeth, which once and for all proved that the body was H.H. H. Holmes. Okay. And the case is finally closed. Fucking A. There have been so many theories over the years, rumors and speculation about H.H. Holmes. However, none have been more compelling than the alleged connection between Holmes and Jack the Ripper. Right. Now, I'm going to cover this theory in a future episode. Super, super interesting stuff. And yeah, they lived at the same time, mm-hmm. and he, he would go to London from time to time. It's very, we're not going to reveal anything. Very right. interesting. Fucking A, bro. This is, that is another potentially two-parter on this guy. This guy has so much information on him. Hmm. But to close out on this episode, um, here's a bit of information. I wanted to throw this in there for those that are interested in kind of some of the, the factual stuff more fact-based instead of theory-based. 
So the commonly repeated figure that Holmes killed as many as 200 people was first suggested in 1940. Before that, the high estimate had been 27, mm. the number he confessed to. Right. But a great many of those people were still alive, apparently fictional or known to have died of natural causes. The actual agreed upon figure stands at nine. Okay. And even five of those are murders for which he probably couldn't have been convicted. Hmm. Beyond that, newspapers, letters, and legal documents introduce a host of other names, some of which were were, were quickly debunked and, and some were never fully investigated. So here's the best known list. Okay. Okay. Known victims. Ben Peitzel. 1894, Howard Peitzel, 1894, Alice Peitzel, 1894, Nellie Peitzel, 1894. These four, a father and his three children, were killed throughout North America in autumn, 1894. In all cases, the bodies were recovered and identified. Howard's body was so badly destroyed, uh, too badly destroyed to be identified, but there was no doubt that the charred remains were his. He was convicted only of Benjamin's murder. Hmm. But sure, too, he would have been convicted of the others if he stood trial for them. Hmm. Assumed victims. Julia Connor. Right. Pearl Connor. Hmm. Emmeline Sigrand. Minnie Williams and Nanny Williams. Though bones were found in the castle basement, um, they were likely pearls. Forensics weren't good enough at the time to be sure. Though Julia, Emmeline, and the Williams sisters disappeared, their bodies were never recovered. And rumors that Holmes sold their skeletons to medical schools, yeah, right. it didn't hold up to any fact-checking in 1895. Ah, oh, damn it. Holmes was relatively consistent in saying that Julia and Emmeline died during illegal abortions uh. and told one of his attorneys that he'd actually killed Julia. However, no bodies were ever positively identified, and it's unlikely that Holmes would have been convicted in court of any of these. Some of these lawyers out there have had some fucked up conversations, haven't they? Right. My goodness. Well, that said, there's no real reason to doubt that he killed them, though. Now, possible victims. These are victims who were mentioned in the press or by Holmes himself in his various writings between 1894 and 1896. In most cases, the stories weren't investigated in enough depth to be confirmed or denied. But in most cases, they were probably just talk. Many were probably still alive. Others likely never existed at all. Um, the story that over 50 missing World's Fair patrons could be traced to the castle was invented by Herbert Asbury, hmm. the same writer who suggested that the total number of victims could be in the hundreds. Right. So, so I wanted to share that tidbit of information because in a future episode, we're going to do this, uh, discuss this theory between... Jack the Ripper and H.H. H. Holmes right. and what the information I just shared and more will play into that. Fuck, man. Yeah. So what it's crazy life to live. Crazy. Mo- monster among us. I really appreciate the friendly friends for getting us through that. <laughs> there was a couple times they came in. Friendly friends are friendly. They, they didn't like it at no, all. They, not. Don't, they don't like the show at all. <laughs> they were asked to be part of it. Well, let's talk about this on the other side of the thing, shall Perfect. we? Perfect. Right. But now it's time for the exciting conclusion of this terrible, terrible shit that we just listened to. Eh? All right, Mrs. Scriptkeeper, thank you so much for that. You're very welcome. That was a lot of research on that piece of shit. It it was, and there that's... Do you 
you put yourself does it put you in a bad position in your mind when you're um, doing this stuff is it can if i let it is the kids thing i know yeah I, I don't like kids stuff yeah i can if i let it but as long as i maintain a distance knowing this is a historical piece mm-hmm. and this happened 120 years ago it's a little bit easier but yeah the human nothing being hasn't changed at all mm-hmm. from then but man, Nothing some of the access to things, my God, being able to sell these skeletons to people. I know. They're like, oh, that's a good skeleton. He's like, yeah, sure was. Yeah. It's like, fuck. Uh, I do know there's so much more about this guy that I didn't put in there. Um, that book, Deviant, mm-hmm. is a good book. It's very interesting. There's a couple of them out there. Deviant was, uh, pr- it's a long read. Mm-hmm. And of course, I didn't read it all. Right. But I pulled my information from there. Very interesting. There's a lot of news articles out there. There's a lot of speculation. Um, but mm. there's several interesting side stories about this guy that uh, it's worth investigating. Right. It really we'll is. be back for the Jack the Ripper connection because that is intriguing as shit. Yeah. And Jack the Ripper by itself is just a crazy, crazy story. Mm-hmm. It goes all over the place. I do want to mention earlier mm-hmm. after we did the the first episode of H.H. H. Holmes yeah like right after that I saw a image that I that was actually at my old job uh-huh. on the wall which was a image of the murder castle yeah. and I didn't even know that I just saw I just saw the image was like oh I remember that yeah and it uh, holy fuck that crazy thing. yeah you can see every room mm-hmm. it's all illustrated and it is nuts. that'd be cool to see it's nuts to actually visualize it and everything I've seen has been sketches and this is a drawing, yeah, but it well, is illustrated well, and fuck. I wanted to try and stick with the most historical, because I really didn't dig for new, new mm. pictures or like new renditions. I wanted to stick with the old stuff, and so I stayed there uh, right. back in the late 1800s. Right. Um, and they were, there's some really interesting drawings, but none of them are, were too highly detailed that I saw. Right. So it would be interesting to see one. I'll dig it up and show you. Yeah, it'd be rad. But it was in the shitbox, too. So thank you guys for crazy. always following up on this stuff. Crazy mm-hmm. stuff. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening to this. And thank you for that. Hella, 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 All the research, man. <laughs> You're welcome. My brain has been on the fritz this week. Because cards, cards, cards. Oh, good God. Thank you to everyone that purchased cards and the, the scat sock mm-hmm. and all of our Christmas stuff. It'll be going all through December as well. Yeah. What a bunch of fun. But everybody that bought it recently today and, mm-hmm. and last week, it'll all be guaranteed, hopefully, mm-hmm. to be at your door. But we're going to do our best. If you want to order it, December 20th, we'll try and get it at your door. So mm-hmm. we'll do our best. But thank you guys for listening. We appreciate it. We appreciate all of our trusted turd triad folk, all mm-hmm. three of them, the trusted turd herders, and uh, all the other people that are doing all the manning of social media and that kind of stuff. I do want to wish a happy birthday one day late to Jasper Garland. <laughs> Happy birthday, Jesper. Important member of the fam. Yes. And I, I don't know how old you are, but a child at heart, I imagine. <laughs> but thank you to all of the meme people, our scat meme army, mm-hmm. and all the folks that have been doing some stuff behind the scenes, too. I, yeah. There's a lot of people contributing and writing and ideas. We get emails all the time. Some of my favorite people in the world are sending me emails of, here's some ideas for David Angus. Here's Love some ideas for dipshit that. files makes my week every week and they're always smarter than things that i would come up with so i love it Uh, but anyway cards and socks the packs are out the box is out Mm -hmm. there's only a couple sets left but you can get those still 
It comes with some special cards. Mm -hmm. The sock you guys can get. There's still a couple of those left as well. Mm -hmm. So enjoy Christmas scat style. Yeah. And this is the last show of the year for us here at the Dipshit Files. Yes, it is. For 2023, we're actually going to take some time and uh, I can dig into more research Mm -hmm. and uh, kind of fill out some more scripts for January of 2024. That's when we'll be back. Mm-hmm. More fun coming, of course, in Dipshit Files. But we took a long season. Mm-hmm. We did a 84. Two, e- two year season. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but we'll be back soon with this show. And of course, there's always more Scatcast shows on the network. And there's mm-hmm. some new ones coming from not just us. I know. There's a couple of folks that are not us. Very excited. Very excited. Our network that. is filling out. It is. And <laughs> you guys will know some of them and you won't know a couple of them. Mm-hmm. And, but you'll like them. They're yes. pretty cool. I think you'll like them. If you, if you like some of the people that we brought on here so far, yep. it's right up that alley. But as always, we'll talk at you in the future. And it'll seem like the present. Thank you so much. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Bye. Bye. Bing. Bong. It's like a turkey poop, but then later it's like...